Hello, listeners. I'm Alex Bachman with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host Am Johel is joined by core contributors of New Red Order artists Adam Khalil, Zach Khalil, and Jackson Paulus. They tell the story of why and how this public secret society was formed and share some context for their Give It Back exhibit at the Audien Gallery. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi there. Welcome to Below the Radar again. I'm really excited that we have New Red Order with us today. They're a public secret society of rotating membership that works to rechannel settler desires for indigeneity and to supports for indigenous futures. And with me today, I have Adam and Zach Khalil and Jackson Polis. I'm wondering if you guys can maybe just introduce yourselves a little bit and also how New Red Order formed as well. Ani Bojo, Shingwa Kandishnikov, Bawatinian Donjaba. My name is Adam Khalil, originally from what's currently called Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, but known as Bawatin. We make work with Jackson and my brother. I'll let them introduce themselves. My name is Zach Khalil, also based in, uh, from the Bawatin region, currently based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm a filmmaker and artist. Uh, working in the new orders once some other years with Adam and Jackson to introduce himself. Thank you. I'm Jackson Paulus. I originally from what is currently called Alaska and Tlingit on my father's side from the Daklawe clan in Klukwan. I grew up in Ketchikan, Alaska, Southeast Alaska. Currently based in New York and happy to be uh, working alongside Adam and Zach. Yeah, so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how New Red Order formed, the context in which you met each other. Of course, Zach and Adam are brothers, but how you guys all formed to do this work together. I met Zach at a very young age. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I think the origins of the New Red Order are a little amorphous sometimes and kind of hard to pin down. I can speak for myself, talking about thinking about coming from more of a filmmaking background and thinking specifically about documentary film from like an indigenous perspective and thinking about the ways that film and the moving image has so often been used as a tool to sort of extract information from indigenous communities through visual anthropology and ethnography, far back as Thomas Edison and Buffalo Bill's show and going up to like Nina for the North. Me and my brother made our first documentary feature about the seven fires prophecy and was sort of interpreted by people in our region. And that was a a really valuable and interesting experience of like trying to reimagine what cinematic form be could be from an Anishinaabe perspective. I mean, thinking about ways of of making movies that isn't inherently extracting. As much as that was like the impulse for our first film, and we're lucky enough to be able to like get it out into the world in a pretty big way in museums and universities. But I think part of that process was also disillusioning, which is like we're really trying to co-author a film with our community and making them this really self-aware way and you know also do tours ourselves of our own community and reservations we found that a big place that film was really getting out was these like universities and museums and sort of non non-indigenous spheres and we were kind of inherently still performing the the role of like the indigenous informant giving up some information about our communities and cultures in a way that sometimes felt kind of extracted in a way that was maybe perhaps kind of unavoidable and that got us kind of thinking more about the idea of, of the informant and the role of the informant 
in these sort of exchanges as indigenous artists operating in settler colonial spheres. I think it was around then that we met Jackson, who had some ideas. He was already picking up a little bit around the idea of uh, informancy. Yeah, I grew up in Alaska. My father was a Tlingit artist. So I grew up performing my own indigeneity in front of boatloads of tourists that would come in, well, come in on cruise ships and perform for the native corporation that had a tourism arm. So I felt that that was a dynamic that created a certain degree of complicity to accept that performance of indigeneity to try to keep one's culture alive. But I continued to feel like that was something that perhaps might be worth attempting to work through those obstructions because I felt that that contributed to a denial of contemporaneity, always pushing Native people into the past. So once I came to Columbia University, started realizing that the desire for Native growth was coming as much from non-Native people wanting kind of this development. But it was also like coded with a lot of like self-proclaimed ignorance and that the more one became aware of indigenous issues, the more those people became apprehensive. So they created this obstruction to indigenous growth. And I was thinking about how the desire for indigeneity might be seen as problematic often. And indeed, in my hometown, there was a, a secret society called the Improved Order of the Red Men. And maybe Adam can go a little bit into that. But yeah, that was a place where I felt like if this desire for indigeneity is seen as problematic, are there ways that it can be converted toward indigenous futures and work past that kind of obstructive nature? Yeah, so one of the true origins of New Red Order, uh-oh, I said true, is this actual secret society as opposed to what we're doing, which is a public secret society. But we kind of, it's the Improved Order of the Red Men, which is the NRO's progenitors. And the Improved Order of the Red Men and the Degree of Pocahontas are two secret societies that kind of came to prominence with the nation of America, the United States of America. So it's like the Boston Tea Party is like one of the first acts that colonists do to decolonize from the British. Haha. <laughs> and they dress up like Mohawks or Iroquois to throw tea over. And just kind of this history that from the inception of North American nations, there's been this desire to perform indigeneity and to take it on. But the Improved Order of the Red Men itself is like it was an actual secret society that had Theodore Roosevelt, FDR, Warren G. Harding, Warren Harding, a few presidents, and many other influential individuals. Yeah, and they would all meet up in wigwams dressed up like natives and have secret society business and political dealings and meetings. So the New Red Order kind of comes out of the Improved Order of the Red Men, which is currently headquartered in Waco, Texas, and still exists. But we're kind of like the indigenous wing of the Improved Order of the Red Men and Degrees of Pocahontas. And yeah, and that's an organization that's still going strong, as Adam was saying, you know, not as strong as it always had been, but still going strong and had been really influential in American politics for a really long time. Kind of like the Freemasons or others, like actual secret societies. And so part of our thinking with the New Red Order was that, you know, if this organization continues to exist, this desire for indigeneity continues to exist in a way that seems unavoidable. Like, how can we turn that into something less harmful and more useful, which is where the New Red Order comes from. I'm sure you have your own secret rituals and things you 
take part in that keeps you inside this new order? If you'd like to find out, please sign up at newredorder.org <laughs> or call 1-888-NEW-RED-1. Again, that's newredorder.org or 1-888-NEW-RED-1. 1-888-NEW-RED-1. <laughs> that's fantastic. And okay. One more distinction, though. It's a public secret society as opposed to a secret okay. society. So it's, yeah. the membership is yeah. open. Yes. I used to be involved in a secret society here in Vancouver, and I can only talk about it because it no longer exists. It was a temporary one. We had the East Vancouver Social Aid and Pleasure Club, and everyone put in $10 a piece. And whenever somebody was going through a hard time or financial thing, we had a pot of money to just hand to people in, a, in an envelope. There was no processor. It was just all built around trust, and it kind of ran itself for a while. But it, And we had you know, oaths and those types of things. And it was very East Vancouver and amateur or whatever. But it was, it's surprising when you tell people that you're in a secret society, everybody wants to be part of it. <laughs> Which is why ours is a public secret society. So they can be part of it. <laughs> yeah. I love it. They can be, but also we found that the welcome can become a warning yeah. in various instances. That's right. I want to talk about some of your previous work as well, but maybe I'll actually begin with the piece that you're going to be having at the O'Dane Gallery on 149 West Hastings Street. By the time this episode comes out, it'll probably be around February. The show will be up from January 14th to March the 6th. And wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you're thinking through that work right now, even if you don't have it fully decided yet. <laughs> it's getting close. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think to start, we're thinking a lot about this sort of like idea of land back and how that's been such a rallying cry in the past few years. I've been thinking about, you know, a lot of what the New Red Order does is sort of like take some of these political arguments or rhetoric to like their logical conclusion. That's something we've been thinking about with the New Red Order for a long time in terms of what can like non-metaphorical decolonization be, just like the repatriation of all indigenous land and life which kind of coincides well with, with this broader movement of land back. But I think we also have always been, you know, cautiously thinking around what the repatriation of all Indigenous land means. I think for a lot of people, that can have a sort of fascistic ring to it, depending on how that's actually implemented. It could be interpreted as simply as everybody goes back to wherever they came from. I think in another way, there's a way we're trying to think about it a little more expansively around, yes, like returning land back to indigenous people, but then also thinking differently about ideas of property ownership, belonging and, and kinship, sort of ways of forging new forms of relationality with each other, more reciprocal ways of relationality that don't end up in just this reverse of what's already happened, which tends to be this really fascistic thing. And so part of us speaking through that has been also, you know, looking around the news and thinking about actual examples of land repatriation that have already happened voluntarily, where it wasn't a tribe that was fighting some treaty negotiation in court or something like that. But there's all these actual examples of individuals or governments actually voluntarily giving land back to indigenous communities. And there seems to be sort of an explosion of these examples in the past two or three years, just from the, the archive and what we've been able to find. And so part of what we're pitching in the uh, Odan Gallery in the window display is the like the new Red Order real estate office where we're highlighting examples where settlers have given land back to indigenous people to kind of show that this call for land back isn't 
lofty, unachievable, inherently blood-soaked like demand, but it's actually something that we can all act on together and that we all already have been, settlers already have been acting on in so many ways. I think part of the impulse in framing the show is give it back as opposed to take it back is also trying to subvert a lot of antagonistic language around land back mm -hmm. and figuring out ways where there's already kind of yeah. established examples mm -hmm. of changing relationships and dynamics that can't imagine indigenous features and growth as opposed to kind of hardlining all this to this almost militaristic mm -hmm. affect of take it back or like these kind of veiled threats of people who own land because sometimes we worry that then the message doesn't get through or the message mm -hmm. only gets through to people who already agree with it. And usually people who agree with it aren't really in positions of power a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So yeah, part of it, I think, is trying to make radical indigenous politics look cute and cuddly a little bit. <laughs> and, 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 and realistic. And it is tricky because we also, I think, are appreciators and adherents to varying degrees of like radical indigenous politics, like this idea that decolonization is not a metaphor, so it requires the repatriation of all indigenous land and life. But then the next question is, what is that? How does one do it? And how does one convince people in power to kind of acquiesce or relinquish their own power? And a lot of times that involves us as informants, the extension of anthropological informants, kind of trying to work at, to varying degrees with institutions, within institutions from inside and outside and inside again, trying to find ways to allow people's desire for indigeneity, which could be called out as problematic, to somehow extend and move into the possibility of giving back what is often termed for them as a gift that it was given to them at some point. And that, like, that's another discussion which can be complicated, but... Are you talking about Indian given? Maybe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, what you speak about, I mean, there's concrete examples of that here in BC where ranchers have given back some of their land, maybe not all of it, but these examples are very concrete here. And certainly being in Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh land here where there's active developments like the squamish Sinoc development is land that they did get back from the state and they're going to be able to develop it without having to go through the city of vancouver's planning bylaws and people are like you know the, the traditional urban planners don't really know how to deal with that and it's kind of amazing and mst development which is the local three nations are going to be one of the biggest developers in the city in the coming decades because of the land they've been able to get back in this context from the state itself. I'm wondering, you clearly have a radical analysis in the work that you do in uh, how you frame your work, but there's also this playfulness to it that's, I suppose, an invitation in for people who might not otherwise come in as well. I'm just wondering who are the sort of theorists or artists that you are inspired by or, or influenced by in thinking through your own work? Bugs Bunny is up there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you're in New York, so I, I, su I yeah. assume you know Audra Simpson. <laughs> or, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> She's great. I love Audra Simpson. <laughs> yeah, Audra's definitely one. For future reference, she also wrote this great piece, um, Why White People Love Franz Boas, with yeah. <laughs> Indigenous Dispossessions. So that's a touchstone for us, among many other of her texts. Christopher Bracken also is an interesting and uh, influential figure for us in different ways. He's a non-native person who wrote this book called Magical Criticism, 
this course of savage philosophy, I believe started that book or ideas for that book when he was living in Vancouver. So this idea of savage philosophy, this kind of racialization of attributions of belief where native people are thought to believe in something and other people are thought to have a more developed mindset. But the way that that kind of bleeds back when poets want to create something, they want to assume this kind of this savage philosophy themselves and have access to that kind of creativity, which is also in some ways a form of being Indian, which Philip Deloria gets to in that text. And of course, Vine Deloria and Indian humor is always uh, an impetus. Thinking that we're like constantly doing this kind of like tug of war between Eve Tuck and Kay Wayne Yang's decolonization is not a metaphor and Christopher Bracken's magical criticism because one is kind of this kind of material political analysis about how dangerous metaphor can be to slip in. And the other one's kind of about the discursive magical potential of metaphor. And I think we're trying to like oscillate between those two, like to have both of those registers, but allow those contradictions between the totality of either thought to kind of commingle and mutate, hopefully. Right. Once we acknowledge that this idea that in Bracken's work, the discourse deploys forces, and that that is something that both European descended people and North American indigenous people might partake in and should be able to potentially without kind of retribution, that symbols can kind of affect change in the world, as we've seen over the past couple of years in many ways with monuments, et cetera, as well. So there are many different ways in which I think utilizing that text can kind of infect and augment what I think just in some ways is already in decolonization is not a metaphor. This kind of acknowledgement of the complexity of the situation, even when we want to hold a hard line and maybe should continue to hold a hard line about what should be given back. It was either in your materials or perhaps it was a quote in an interview. I saw the use of the term critical opacity. I really like that. And I'm wondering if you can explain what you meant by that. Opacity is the one you can see through. <laughs> That's right. Another Giuliani joke, yeah. remember? <laughs> Damn, I got the one letters down today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's in some ways one could draw links between critical opacity and forms of refusal that are advocated in or that are kind of described in Simpson's work and also Glenn Coulthard, this idea of like the difficulty of acquiescing to recognition. So I guess critical opacity is in some ways could also be aligned with this idea of the joke where part of the joke is a form of acknowledgement. So that if we're deploying humor and what seems like satire, we're also acknowledging the kind of, for us, what can be an opaque situation. Like it can seem overwhelming. It can seem like there's no way historically that it's this kind of dynamic which has been oppressive, has been able to be overcome. So if one can offer a speculative joke, then one can simultaneously draw people in where they feel like they are like understanding that it is ridiculous for the situation's ridiculous. It's ridiculous for them to try to get involved. But then we try to continue that and ask, like, how can you remain critical in a generative, generous way and ask people to come in with that kind of acknowledgement? of the ludicrous so-called nature of the situation and extend toward kind of working together. 
Yeah, Glenn Coulthard and Leanne Simpson are definitely in conversation with Audra Simpson's work very, very closely. Uh, you mentioned Vine Deloria Jr. And for our audience who might not know who he is, I know that he wrote the introduction to the Fourth World George Manuel's book a long time ago that was just reprinted with University of Minnesota Press. But uh, wondering if you can talk a little bit about how his work influences your work. We definitely refer to him as the godfather of indigenous philosophy or those kind of, right? There's some amazing interviews with him on YouTube where he's just changed from Paul Mollick. He just named such a wise ass. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> I think one of the things that keeps coming up for me anyway is that essay on Indian humor, where he kind of <laughs> unpacks this sort of epistemological worldview that's shaped by humor as a way to respond to the tragedy of history. And something that I think is just then kind of there for us to fall back to. And we're like, is this the right thing to do? Are we pushing it too far? And it's like, go back to that environment. Like, no, it's cool. <laughs> yeah, and humor is a way of like reasserting agency too, I think, in so many ways. I mean, like Jackson's getting at too, just like a way of being able to like talk and communicate about an otherwise sort of unspeakable, unknowable reality. Like humor is an important way of like, cracking open that unknowableness and leaving space for people to actually communicate and contemplate, you know, different futures together. And I think maybe one thing that I think we all find really inspiring about like Vine Deloria Jr.'s legacy is he was able to like kind of morph between academia and politics and policy and philosophy and just kind of like really seep through all those forest boundaries. And that's something I think we're aspiring to by calling ourselves a public secret society. So it could be like a religious group, it could be a think tank, it could be a political party, and I guess it could also be our collective, I hope. <laughs> Some of your work, including informants, get paid, never settle, culture capture. I really enjoyed seeing the pieces I was able to and reading about the work as well, but wondering if you can talk about whether these pieces or other work that you've done together in terms of what you were trying to do with those pieces. I guess maybe going back to never settle there's both sort of the recruitment video in the program the recruitment video is like a shorter sort of teaser and the program is sort of a longer initiation video those are really intended to solidify the structure of the, the public secret society in itself and serve as recruitment tools the recruitments that can live online and that you know really trying to call people in to consider this work and some of these ideas with us and that's sort of how the recruitment video functions sort of getting everybody to the same baseline level of understanding about what the New World Order is and what we're trying to do. And the program, I think, further complicates that a little bit. And once we have people starting to be engaged, that gives us space and time to like really dig into some of these ideas and sometimes really playful and other times really serious ways. I'm sort of trying to get new recruits or accomplices on the same page, same starting point. But that's sort of the intention of those pieces. There's this funny role that I keep thinking that a lot of indigenous art falls into, which is having to be pedagogical. And so that's something I think we've sort of accepted and leaned into. But then, you know, it's like, is the teacher on acid or something? Or just like figuring out like how to use that position as an informant in a way that like actually can promote indigenous features as opposed to just participating in extractive knowledge. Yeah, totally. Because some people also engage with indigenous art and expect it to serve like a pedagogical function. They sort of already know what they're getting into and already know what to expect a little bit. 
I think part of what we want to do is like keep people guessing and keep them on their toes and like keep them thinking in ways that they weren't thinking before. And if we're just like sort of, I think part of taking on that pedagogical function so directly in these sort of recruitment forms, you also have the Never Sell Activity book, which is like, you know, sort of children's educational book for adults. That there's a way of sort of engaging with people and getting them a little bit off balance, a little bit off center in a way that they can hopefully think through something that hopefully probably already quite familiar with, but in a different way. And I think the humor and the sort of surrealness of some of this is a way to push that. And I think formally, you know, the way the film was made out involving multiple forms of citation that can relate back to indigenous storytelling or like insertion of bracketed moments throughout the film. I think also like, like from Zach and Adam were saying this idea of education, which is now like a current commodity and us feeling like a lot of times we have to do so much anyway with regard to explaining whatever is going on. And that is often something that's separate from the work so that how can, how can we then fold that in so that the expectation is acknowledged upon the viewing of the work and kind of the ridiculous kind of dynamic of someone telling somebody else what one should do. And I think one of the ways we've been able to dis find distance and play within that form is to employ proxy so that we have others speaking for us so that that is a dynamic that is like we have to start to hold up intention and kind of think about alongside the viewing of the work. And like, I think we've tried to find multiple ways of like having instances where you have to hold something in suspension while you're viewing. And then the activity of that upon viewing the work is kind of an exercise that can potentially lead to something reconfiguring down the line. What is it just to riff on that with the proxy stuff, especially in relation to the work of Yep and Audin, is just like a lot of land back stuff focuses on Native or Indigenous people asking for land back. And this is very consciously taking the kind of settler perspective on this issue. So like testimonials and quotes from people who have given the land back and not focusing on the tribes who are receiving it, but really kind of investigating the settlers' desires for indigeneity and their motivations for giving it back and trying to kind of resist or refuse like a de facto indigenous representation in indigenous art. So like also maybe sometimes it's more effective for like a 50-year-old white guy to ask for things than it is for like a group of native artists to ask for things or maybe different people will listen to it or it'll register in a different way. Sometimes I feel like people just tune it out when they hear it from a certain identity subject position or kind of know what to expect already. That's also like one of the powers of working with proxies. In the process of inviting people in through your work, how do you think about setting, or even if it's possible, the limits around in the work of settlers to support Indigenous futurities? It's one thing to invite them in, but there's tendencies of settlers to center themselves. And so how do you think that part of your work through, or has it even been an issue? I think it was like an issue prior to the formations of New Red Order, like the necessity of some kind of critical energy that can lend to self-reflection, but then the possibility of reflexivity getting in the way or this excess reflexivity getting in the way of trying to center someone else. So I think one of the ways we've tried to do that is to like describe ways one could do that, like in the program. I think it's almost always a negotiation in every conversation around what potential roles could be. Mm -hmm. And we kind of make space for that reflexivity in terms of like there's kind of two tiers. And nothing is dictated as like an absolute 
upon joining the new red order, it's all negotiable. But one level is like this level of an informant, where we first ask people to inform on their own desire for indigeneity. That also includes indigenous people's desire for indigeneity for performing that. And that's sort of like that space to allow for that self-reflective moment or to allow people to center themselves in that. But actually getting that information out of people and hearing what they desire about indigeneity is actually really helpful in terms of thinking about how to promote indigenous futures. It's like a focus group or something, basically, or like reverse anthropology. But after that layer, then there's the kind of like accomplice layer, which again, along decolonization, not a metaphor, like, and also accomplices, not allies, which they used to be called indigenous action media groups. Indigenous action now, they're correct. They're just indigenous action now. But that text has also been really important for us in terms of the thinking and kind of like co-opting their language of accomplice that to do anything inherently decolonial would have to be against the law and calling for accomplices instead of allies. Encyclopedia. Yeah, and that accomplices are people are at our side or at our backs during you know decolonial struggle. I wanted to kind of put it on the line. And I think, yeah, to both Adams and Jackson's point, I think that centering of the self and one's desire to help is something that does have to be addressed and reflected on in order to be able to move past it or move with it into something more fruitful for everybody. It makes me think of a line that has come up during some of this informancy, which is someone was like, you know, I know it's not about me, but for me, it is. And I think there's like a real deep truth in that, unfortunately, and that to just ignore that is not going to help that person move beyond themselves. And it's necessary to be able to like reflect on that self-interest in order to be able to move with that into accomplishing. And that's something that's also sort of named and the accomplices not allies zine is like one of the important things if you really want to be an accomplice is that you have to think about why you want to do that. What's your own self-interest and what's your motivation towards that? And that has to be addressed and hopefully addressed collectively in order to be able to move forward together in a more fruitful way. We're also just trying to create a safe space for unsafe ideas. <laughs> you can cut that I'm wondering what artists are you either influenced by or interested in right now that also kind of help inform your work in any way, or just people that you think are doing interesting work right now that helps you think through your own practice? Guillermo Gomez Pena comes to mind. It's one of the influences. Guillermo Gomez Pena, Coco Fusco are kind of like contemporary. I'll put my foot in my mouth for a second. Adam and Zach never like it when I mention old Jeff Koons removing the guilt and shame. Remove the guilt and shame. <laughs> but yeah, stop thinking about Jeff a little while ago. But um <laughs> And I'll have one last question, which is how are you guys dealing with the pandemic and what are you guys gonna be doing after the Odane show? I've been wearing a mask, washing my hands. <laughs> <laughs> You you guys are sitting pretty close together there. <laughs> yeah, it's been a doozy. <laughs> it's been intense. I was just thinking too, I mean, the pandemic really hit when we were working on our first big solo show together um, at MoCash, where we were kind of revising our Never Settle piece. And it was an interesting moment where the piece talks a lot about sort of the apocalypse and the reformation of society and all these things that are so necessary and that we all felt were happening and to like see it actually really start to happen has been really intense but also really inspiring in some ways we've been fortunate enough to be holding it down and okay and our families are okay but trying to think about 
this sort of crisis as an opportunity of sorts for the sort of rhetoric that we're espousing. But yeah, easier said than done too, I suppose. But I think there's definitely even more hunger for like indigenous epistemologies even now so than there were before. And that's something that you want to think through how to how to maybe make that something actually useful for indigenous people as opposed to having to just move on and forget about it real quick. Yeah. And I think also through the events of the last year, we've seen examples of what's appear to be increased institutional will to change. And sometimes that comes out in solidarity signaling, which can easily be called out, but I think also points to realities that like a lot of people, individual people working in institutions want to find some ways to make those more equitable in, in ways that you know might in some ways be at odds with radical indigenous critiques, but also can potentially be shifted by them, by those critiques, so that there's an opportunity now to kind of leverage that for positive potential change. I just want to say thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar. I totally love your work and look forward to seeing it at the O'Dane Gallery early in the new year. It'll all be up by the time this episode comes up, but thank you for taking the time to chat on Below the Radar. Thanks so much for having us. And again, if anyone's interested, one eight 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 new red one or www.newredorder.org. Thank Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to our conversation with some of the minds behind New Red Order, Adam Khalil, Zach Khalil, and Jackson Paulus. The Give It Back exhibit is still in the Hastings Street window of the Audine Gallery at SFU Vancouver, so be sure to walk by and check it out before it closes on March 6, 2021. And go to newredorder.org if you're ready to become an informant. Thanks as always for tuning in. We'll see you next time on Below the Radar.